You remember in our time last week in verses 4 through 8, 1 Peter 2, Peter says, And coming to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed." So this is a spiritual house built upon the cornerstone which is chosen by the master builder. It is precious to the master builder and it is crucial to the living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house. This is not a building, it's not a physical building, it's not a temple made with physical stones cut from the earth, but a spiritual house built with spiritual people for a spiritual purpose to offer sacrifices pleasing to the master builder. So Jesus Christ, chosen in eternity past, before the foundation of the world as a living stone, the choice cornerstone, precious to his Father, choice, costly, and crucial to the task. No other stone would do. Only he could serve as the cornerstone of this spiritual house, the church, the elect of God, who also were chosen before the foundation of the world to come to Jesus Christ and to be built up, to be used as living stones in this spiritual house, that they would offer pleasing sacrifices to the master builder, God himself, who designed the house, delights in its sacrifices, and exercises dominion not only over the house itself, but over every false, failed builder who foolishly assesses and rejects the choice cornerstone, showing his disbelief, his disappointment in stumbling over the cornerstone, and ultimately experiencing eternal destruction as a result. So from that point where we left off last week, Peter moves forward in our text this morning in verse 9 with what's referred to in grammatical terms as an emphatic adversative. An emphatic adversative. Now don't write that down. But I think you need to understand that what Peter is doing here is making a deliberate turn. The word but in English is an adversative. It means that one thing has been said, but something of a different nature is about to be said that's not contradictory to what has been said, but it's certainly of a different nature. He's certainly making a different point. So the idea is that although what I have said is true, there is something else that is also true. Don't miss it. Verses 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. 
you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he has pointed to the reality that Jesus Christ is that cornerstone. Those who come to him are proven to be living stones themselves who are used to be built up as a spiritual house for what purpose? To make sacrifices that are pleasing to the master builder. Here in verse 9 with this little phrase, but you, he refocuses his attention on the believers to whom he has been writing in contrast to the unbelievers to whom he has not been writing. This second person plural pronoun, you, denotes a message to the body of Christ, not just individuals. We live in an era, we live in a society, we live in a spiritual world, if you can even call it that, who thinks of Christianity as that which is between an individual and his God. And so he looks back on his life, and he thinks things and even says things like, if it weren't for the Lord, my life would have been a mess. And he forgets the reality that the Lord, whose name he is proclaiming, uses people. He uses people. He uses people for himself to be proclaimed and exalted and praised, but he also uses people that other people would have hope. There is no such thing as a hopeful Christianity that exists between God and one person alone. That's not Christianity. And I think you'll see that proven even more clearly from our text this morning. Peter borrows from Old Testament Scripture in such a way that it can't be ignored. He draws upon these phrases, these terms in the Old Testament so that the believer in the New Testament era would understand that when God called people to himself in the Old Testament, there was a more long-term plan than just that which was exhibited for Israel. So he starts with this phrase, but you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. Now when the discussion of the doctrine of election gets messy, this is a great place to turn because it's a real dividing place between those who actually believe what the Bible says and those who wash over things they don't like. This is a dividing passage. I believe this is one of the most offensive passages in all the Bible. And I'm telling you, it will certainly separate those who truly believe what the Scripture says from those who don't. And the minute you or anyone you're having interaction with begins to grab passages from all other places in the Bible and superimpose them upon this text, you have categorized yourselves as immediately person who does that immediately categorizes himself as someone who does not trust or believe in the sufficiency of the Scripture. Let the text say what it says. This ought to produce joy in each one of us. The fact is, this is the mo most pride-crushing doctrine in all the Bible. And therefore, the person who won't submit to it, but continues to hang on to his pride and won't release himself from his own superimpositions upon the Bible, won't believe it. He won't be changed by it. But the minute the person begins to acknowledge the reality that this is good, why do we know it's good? Because it's God's design that he do it this way, but it's also God's kindness to express it in the Scripture. That's how we know it's good. We can rest in the fact that it is good, do everything we can to understand it the best we can, acknowledge that we'll never understand it to the degree that God understands it, but move forward by proclaiming it with peace and joy and happiness and confidence and strength and humility in the Lord. 
If you're going to flip through your Bible, look for passages that help you understand this rather than help you destroy it. That's the mindset of the Spirit-filled Christian. This Greek term here, these two Greek terms together, are genos eklekton. Now, listen, I'm not into telling you Greek words so that you'll know that I know a little Greek and you'll walk away saying, man, that Todd is so smart. I want this to be helpful to you. So let me tell you why I'm pointing out these Greek terms to you. Genos eklekton. Eklekton is translated as elect or chosen or select. And so it's pretty obvious there's a similarity in the Greek and in the English. So this is what you would call almost a literal transliteration. You get the English word from the Greek term, elect, from eklekton. They sound a lot alike. Genos is from the same root from which we get our word genesis or beginnings. This word means offspring or descendancy or lineal descent or nation. So elect nation, elect people. Some of your translations might say chosen people. That's the more standard terminology by those who uh, talk about these things regularly. Peter takes this term, elect nation, directly from Isaiah 43, verse 20 to 21, where Isaiah says, the beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, to my elect nation. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. This is really the heart of our passage this morning in terms of what Peter is trying to help us understand. Let me read it, verse 21 again. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. The title of this morning's message is Chosen to Praise. I pulled that out of our text from 1 Peter, but Isaiah the prophet reports from God the same exact reality. Really, Peter is leaning on or resting on or going back to this basic Old Testament reality that God has determined he has set apart a people for himself for what purpose? To praise him. To praise him. They're the only people who praise him, by the way. You say, but aren't there false believers? Aren't there cults? Aren't there pseudo-Christian religions that praise God? No. No, there are not. There are false religions, pseudo-Christian religions, cults, that proclaim a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible. This is where the doctrine of Christology, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, is so important. The Mormons do not worship Jesus Christ. They worship a false Jesus Christ, one who is not the God-man who was God in eternity past. The Jesus Christ that they worship is a man who became a God. That's not the God-man, Jesus Christ of the Bible. It's a false God. Same with the Jehovah's Witnesses. They do not worship the true Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible. They proclaim him to be a God, but not the Almighty God. Although Revelation 4.8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the Almighty God. So this people that God has chosen for himself is a people that praise him, and they're the only people that praise him. This is what separates those who are chosen from those who are not. Now, regarding this term, these terms, ganos eklekton, D. Edmund Hebert says, the word denotes the descendants of a common ancestor and thus designates a people with a common heritage sharing the unity of a common life. 
This term pictures Christians as a people united by their own common heritage through the new birth. Go back to verse 23 or even back to verse 3 where Peter says that you have been caused to be what? To be born again. You've been caused to be born again. You've been regenerated. You didn't regenerate yourself. A dead man can't do that. So you've been regenerated in the uh, the word picture here, or the metaphor here, is that of the birth of a baby. A baby doesn't choose to be born. And so that well displays what happens when a person is regenerated. He's given new life. Hebert goes on to say, Because of its spiritual birth, the new race transcends all natural distinctions of ancestry, languages, or cultures. But the word chosen... The fourth and final occurrence of that adjective in Peter's epistle reminds us that it is the divine initiative that has made Christians a distinct people who no longer belong to the world. End quote. They no longer belong to the world. Why? They belong to God. God has chosen them. He set them apart, this chosen people, this chosen nation. You say, but I thought Israel was God's chosen race. I thought Israel was God's chosen people, and you're right, they are. It's a little history lesson this morning. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 15, Genesis 15, starting with verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be great. Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house, Eleazar, of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. When we went through the book of Galatians, you remember many references back to this verse, verse 6. It was reckoned unto Abraham as what? Righteousness. What was reckoned to him as righteousness? His belief, his trust in the Lord, that God would fulfill his elective promise. And so, you have then not following too long on the heels of this theological reality, this narrative, the story of Joseph. So Joseph comes from that lineage. His brothers hate him because his father loves him more than he loves his brothers. He gets sold into slavery. Joseph then, by God's providence, ends up in prison for something he didn't do, supposedly attacking the the wife of Potiphar when she, in fact, had attacked him while he's in prison prison, he interprets a dream for a man who leaves prison eventually, and he tells Pharaoh, there's a guy in prison who can interpret your dream, because Pharaoh has been looking and looking and looking for someone to interpret his dream. No one can do it, so he pulls Joseph out of prison. Joseph interprets the dream. As a result, Pharaoh makes him second in command of Egypt, and then lo and behold, Joseph's brothers come looking for food, because there is a seven-year drought going on 
in all the land. Joseph provides for his brothers then food and sustenance, but the qualification that he requires from them is that they bring their youngest brother back to be with him. As a result of that, it is told by Joseph to his brothers when they realize who he is, they think he's probably going to kill them at this point. He says to them that many people will be saved out of what took place. We call this God's providence. He says to them what you intended for evil, God intended for good. It's God's providence that an innocent man thrown into prison, suffering, and you see this in the lives of those to whom Peter writes in 1 Peter, that they are suffering, they are in exile, and the suffering that they're going through is ultimately that which is the test by which they determine whether or not they're people of God. Joseph proves to be a man who trusts in the Lord. And the result of that is that the Lord uses him, and really this is God's providence, that's the better way to say it, both are true, but in God's providence, Joseph proves to be a man who is of the elect, and therefore the Lord uses him to save his elect nation. Well, in Exodus chapter 3, then, we fast forward quite a number of years where now the people who are there, all of Israel is in Egypt, but under captivity. And in this captivity, they have a horrible, horrible way of life. And so God has compassion upon his people. In chapter 3, verse 6, this is where Moses is standing on the mountain before the burning bush, and God, through the angel of the Lord, is speaking to him, declaring these things to him. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their sufferings, so I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now, behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me, Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. So God hears the cry of his people. These are his elect people. These are people that he has determined will do what? They will worship him. In fact, God says to Moses, it will be a sign to you. You know, Moses is essentially saying, how can I do this? I've got a, he says literally, I've got a speech impediment. Why not my brother Aaron? God says, I've chosen you. And in so doing, there will be a sign. It will be a sign to you that when you come out of Egypt, the people will worship me. Why? Because that's what they're set apart to do. In Exodus 3, verse 10, Therefore come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? 
God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, a little bit of a secondary but very important theological lesson here with regard to the deity of Jesus Christ. This term, I am that I am, most fundamentally means to exist, to exist. That's the most literal translation of that phrase. So God is saying to Moses, when they ask who's sending you, you tell them the existing one. That's really the issue, the one who exists in eternity past, in eternity future. There was never a time when this God did not exist. So in John chapter 8, when the religious leaders press Jesus, they're debating with him, and they say to him, who are you? His terminology there is precisely the same in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Jesus says, ego, ami, I am. Ego meaning I, ami meaning am. I am that I am. So what scholars had translated from the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek Septuagint, which was the common Bible of the day, it was the common use of the scriptures in that day, when Jesus said those words, Ego a me, they knew that he was quoting this passage, and it was at that point at which they attempted to do what? To kill him, because he was claiming to be the God of Israel. He was claiming to be the king of the Jews. Now back to Exodus in chapter 4, verse 31. So the people believed. This was after Moses had exhibited a faint heart and his wife steps in and and the Lord relents. He has mercy on Moses. He was about to kill him, but because of his wife's faithfulness, he chose not to. And it says, so the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshiped. This is what elect people do. They worship. They see that God has proven himself time and time again to be a God who has set a people apart for himself. That in the Passover, in Exodus chapter 12, where the Lord is laying out for the people a feast of celebration, really a number of feasts, but the whole point is to celebrate their exit from Egypt, that God spared them from captivity in Egypt. Those who are his chosen people will take a lamb, a spotless lamb. They will sacrifice that lamb. They will brush the blood of that lamb upon the doorposts and above the doorway itself. And in so doing, they're declaring that they long for God's mercy. And in God's mercy, he then will pass over those homes where that blood is placed. But he will destroy everyone else in the land. So we have the term Passover. And there's a sense in which we symbolize that or we engage in that which symbolizes that when we take the Lord's table together. In Exodus 12 verse 47, all the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near to celebrate it and he shall be like a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person may eat of it. You say, well, wait, wait, wait. I thought Israel was God's chosen people. Well, here in this passage where the Lord is proclaiming to the people of Israel that 
If a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, then these things must be done. The idea then is that it was never only just biological Israel. It was always specifically those that God had chosen for himself. It was primarily those of the nation of Israel. But there would be those who would be cast out because they would not be faithful. There are also those who would be grafted in. This is terminology that we borrow from the New Testament. They are grafted into the body. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. You see that same exact, almost same exact terminology in our passage this morning in 1 Peter. He's chosen this people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. So, pretty clear statement with regard to the fact that this wasn't something that Israel earned by being a powerful nation of great number. Verse 8 in Deuteronomy 7, But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Well, then in Romans 9, In Romans 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. We could easily look at those who hear the word of God with clarity. It's taught well. It's taught clearly. There are those who believe, and there are those who disbelieve. Here, Paul the apostle, a Hebrew of Hebrews, one who knew the law better than anyone of his contemporary age, writes these words. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. What Paul is referring to here is that the Israel of God is not necessarily every single person in the nation of Israel. Verse 7, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. See that? But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Verse 9, For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and and not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Paul goes on to say, quoting God, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. When? After a lifetime of faithfulness for the one and a lifetime of faithlessness of the other? After one chose him and the other chose not to choose him? No. No. Prior to their birth. You say, man, that's not fair. And the only proper response to that is to look to the Scripture and see what Paul's response to that is. Will the clay 
say to the potter, why have you made me like this? God is sovereign. God is sovereign, and he has determined whom his people will be. In Romans 11, verse 5, In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. You say, what about Israel? Is all Israel rejected and replaced with Gentiles? Because in some texts, it certainly looks like that. Paul answers that question here. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. This is a very helpful theological treatise with regard to how to help your Catholic friends who are convinced that their salvation is by their works. It's faith in Jesus plus my own works. Paul's pretty clear here that it wouldn't be grace if it's by works. But it is by grace. Verse 7, what then? What Israel is seeking, now listen closely here, what Israel is seeking it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. You hear that? Those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So God's clear design from eternity past was that Israel would be his chosen people. And Israel spurned that. And much of Israel has rejected the call to salvation through the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so, the Gentiles, (laughs) those who Jews would have considered to be dogs, the worst of all society, lower than animals, God then uses them to do what? To glorify himself by producing spiritual jealousy in Israel. You reject me, I will choose another people who were not a people upon whom to pour my mercy and to make my people. And ultimately, who then gets the glory? No one but God. No one can get glory in a circumstance like that. Neither you nor I nor anyone you or I have ever met would create a scenario like this because we would look at this and say it's not fair. But because God did it the way he did it, who then gets the glory? Him, exclusively, and no one else can. Well, along with the Passover, and what's specifically referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why unleavened bread? You ever wonder that? God told the Israelites to get out of Egypt fast. you got no time to bake anything and put leaven in it so it'll rise. Get out of town. And that represents the manner with which they left Egypt. They left that captivity that God pulled them out of. In Exodus 12, verse 19, Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. All Israel is not Israel. 
There are those who are of the, the national biological Israel who are not God's chosen Israel, and that is proven in their conduct. What do I mean by that? Well, again, in the passage that I just read to you, whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. Now, don't be concerned about eating leavened bread today. It doesn't apply to you. The point there was that God gave specific instructions. Follow the instructions. Follow the commands of the Lord. So in 1 John 2, verse 3, we have this very clear passage. The fact is that we know that we have come to know him if what? We keep his commands. A person who refused to keep that command proved himself to not be of God's people. In 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, you remember this from many weeks ago. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And you say, well, wait a minute, foreknowledge? That means he had knowledge beforehand. God is displaying here is the fact that he knew them in eternity past. He had pre-knowledge, intimate knowledge, the Greek term gnosko, which is different from the Greek term oida, which is simply awareness. This is not an awareness of them in eternity past. This is a deliberate love from the past, casting his love upon whom he has chosen. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, we continue to see this concept of God's elective purpose. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. The doctrine of election by no means dispels or negates the necessity of belief. The fact is that belief and a devotion to the truth and that sanctification will take place in the person's life is real by no means negates the doctrine of election. They both work quite smoothly with one another. But the fact that God has chosen them from the beginning is proven by their sanctification, their devotion to the truth, and their faith in the Spirit of God. In Acts 13, verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, when the Gentiles heard the truth, when they heard the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. John 15, verse 16. <laughs> you did not choose me. You didn't. But I chose you. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. Paul says to Timothy regarding God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Not from the point of some decision when you were 12 years old at an altar call, but from all eternity. Paul expresses his devotion to the elect. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 10, where he says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. 
Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. God freely bestows His grace upon those who are the Beloved, those whom He loves. You could graph a timeline in the lives of many, many people. Those of the elect who at some point in time acknowledge God's grace and His mercy, they cry out to Him for forgiveness, they acknowledge with thanksgiving and humility that He has done all that which is necessary for them to be receivers of His mercy and spared from the fullness of God's wrath. And over time, they look back at that, they rest in that, they trust in that, they hope in that, they glorify God in that, they continue to receive mercy and grace. They are effective then in communicating truth to others that as a result, they too would receive mercy and grace and would display God's glory in their lives. And then you can track the lifetimes of many, 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 many other people who at some point in time were pressured into some kind of fleshly decision to ask Jesus into their heart. And there's no devotion to holiness, although many of the passages I've read to you this morning, specifically from Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. The call of God's people is to be holy and blameless before Him. And yet, you know the debate of the mid-80s. Many of you know this debate, the lordship debate. Many scholars, men who were known to be scholars, were saying things like, well, you can receive him as your Savior and then take him as your Lord later. There's nothing in the Scripture of such a mindset. The person who is of the elect immediately has an interest in things that are righteous. It doesn't mean that he's sinless, and he will continue in his sin for sure, but he will not die in his sins, and he will not rest in his sins, and he will not be comfortable with his sins. He will repent of his sin, and he will hate his sin. But too often, you have people who have made some sort of fleshly decision because they were pressured to do so after 12 verses of Just I Am, or whatever the song happens to be. It's melodious. It's emotional. It does everything necessary to prime the person's heart, to get them to be softened in the flesh, to make some sort of decision. And then what happens? Two, three, five years later, there's no devotion to holiness. There's no devotion to righteousness. There's no devotion to evangelism. And then they hear another similar message, and what do they do? They recommit their life to the same load of garbage. And they go through that cycle again. And they go through that cycle again. And so the question is, well, how many times did you get saved? Well, I only got saved once, but, you know, I was nine. I really didn't understand it, you know, but I gave my life to the Lord. Well, what about Ephesians 1? What about 1 Peter? What about 1 John? What about every passage in the Scripture that points to God's glory and that He has chosen a people for Himself who will be devoted to holiness and will sing His praises? See, the idea of there being 
a Jesus Christ who will save you but won't call you to holiness, it's actually a deceptive scheme of Satan. Why do I say that? Because it ushers people into a false sense of security. I made a decision for Christ, therefore I'm okay. At least I know I've got eternal life. I can't tell you, friends, as a school principal for nine years and as a pastor for near 25 years now, I can't tell you how many times... Don't do the math. I did both at the same time. I'm not that old. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, my, my son's not walking with the Lord, but praise God he made a decision when he was 12. It's a complete, completely disastrous mindset. It abdicates all responsibility for a parent to teach their child the truth. And just get him to make a decision. You can get anybody to make a decision. Anybody will do that. You emotionalize the message enough. And anybody will say, well, yeah, that's a, sure, I'll take that. But there's no devotion to personal holiness. There's no interest in truth. Sunday's the worst day of their life. <laughs> oh, here we go to church again. You know, Why? Because they're living in not just this internal conflict, but there's this external conflict. There's this expectation upon me that I would enjoy the things of the Lord, but I don't. And i got to pretend until I'm 18, I get out of the house. I've seen it more times than I could possibly tell you. And I'm passionately, deeply committed to God's glory, and I believe you are as well, that we will not be a church that looks like that. That 15 years from now, those who are in the nursery today would say, you know what, that was fun when I was a kid, the singing and all the pictures and all that stuff. But, you know, I got to be 18 or 19, and I decided that's really not for me. Yeah, I made a decision for Jesus when I was, you know, four or seven. But, you know, I, I got a different way of thinking. There's nothing like that in the Scripture. It's false belief. It's false conversion. And we must be faithful to this truth that God determines who his elect people are and he proves that by producing in them a holiness and a desire for his honor. Listen to this from Revelation 13, verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Who will worship him? Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Revelation 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world Revelation 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. When was the book of life written? When were those names inscribed in that book of life? Well, let me say this. It was certainly before they were seven. It was before they were 12. Friends, it was before they were born. It was before the foundation of the world. God determines whom his people are. The next term that Peter uses here is a royal priesthood. We've looked at what it means to be of a chosen race. Peter gives us further terminology. He calls it a royal priesthood. This is a confluence of two terms not typically spoken together. In Exodus 19, verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, 
If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So again, Peter is borrowing from this terminology, the idea of a royal priesthood. In Exodus 19, verse 10, the Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. So again, this very clear declaration of the fact that this holy nation, this royal priesthood that the Lord has called for himself has boundaries. And those who violate those boundaries are proven to not be of God's chosen people. Hebrews 2 verse 17 is helpful with this. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And so he serves not only as the sacrificial lamb used by the priest, You know, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, what did the high priest do? He, in essence, pre-represented the atonement for the people's sin. The priest would come in with a spotless lamb, a spotless animal, and in so doing, he would represent the spotless lamb of Jesus Christ who would come later. Jesus Christ, though, is in fact himself not only the sacrifice, but he's also the priest who offers the sacrifice. So this priesthood of believers, this royal priesthood, embodies an expression of who he is, that he is not only king, but he is also priest, but he is also the Lamb of God. This phrase here speaks, this royal priesthood, speaks of royal servants. Jesus is king. He is also priest, a servant. So this term, royal priesthood, speaks of royal servants, kingly slaves, serving kings. Kings who serve. Those who are themselves royalty but offer up service to the king of kings. They are kingly, but they are priestly. A kingly priesthood, priests who not only serve by offering up sacrifices, but will also reign with the king of kings. So this is a priestly kingdom. In Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. This is what makes us committed to the idea of a literal millennium, an actual 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. 
In Revelation 5, verse 9, we read, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You say, but John 3.16, it's always the argument, John 3.16, God so loved the world the term cosmos there by no means means every single person in the world. Does that mean that there are people that God doesn't love? We wouldn't say that. We believe that when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and Jesus told him what he needed to hear, that he would walk away sad, sell all your possessions if you want eternal life. The text tells us Jesus loved him, even though he rejected the gospel. We wouldn't say that God does not love the whole world. We're just saying that that's not the point of John 3.16. God so loved the world, the cosmos. He loves specifically those within the world. This text in Revelation 20, verse 6, makes it clear that there will be those out of the world, from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation, who will serve him, those who are called to be of his elect people, his royal priesthood. In Romans 10, verse 16, Paul says, However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people, a people who were called to a royal priesthood and yet rejected it. So what do we say then? We say those who are literally of that people, those who are literally of this royal priesthood, those are, who are kings who will reign with Christ in the millennial reign, but also priests who offer up service to him, they will be proven to be of that royal priesthood by their conduct. We also see the term here in our text, a holy nation. He says not only... Are you a chosen race, a royal priesthood, but also a holy nation? Ethnos Hagion. Ethnos, a people, a large group based on various cultural, physical, or geographic ties. This is the term from which we get our term ethnicity. So an ethnos, a holy ethnos, a holy ethnicity, a holy people. Hagion, that term that you're probably well familiar with, which means set apart. It means holy. This is a holy people, a holy nation. It is set apart or consecrated or dedicated to the Lord for the Lord's service. So all three of these terms then lead us to the place in our text where Peter rounds this out by saying that you are a people for God's own possession. And why? Why? Why has God established a people for his possession? A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Peter says this is why. 
so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul gives us a very practical and doctrinal insight into what this should look like in our lives. You know, many people upon first hearing about or reading or seeing or have some awareness of the doctrine of election would say, well, so you people think you're better than everybody else. I'll never forget when I first read Cornelius Van Til, who was the first person ever to really effectively draw my attention to this doctrine. And he essentially said, by way of question, so, if God were not sovereign, wouldn't that mean that man could frustrate God's plan? And my immediate answer to that question was, yeah, so what? Well, clearly, I didn't understand God's sovereignty. I didn't understand that salvation is an act of grace, not an act of man's choice. And so when a person would say, well, I rest in the gospel, I rest in the truth, I rest in God's grace, I rest in his mercy, he would never ever say, if he's thinking rightly, God chose me because I'm better than others. But unfortunately, and I think quite commonly, when a person is first brought to an awareness of this doctrine, and some will dig their heels in for many, many, many years, they want to bring that mindset to the text of Scripture and superimpose upon God their own idea about what fairness is, rather than simply clinging to the reality of the Scripture. Now, here's the mindset of Paul the Apostle maybe the most compassionate evangelist that we've ever heard of or known. And in the beginning of Romans 9 and the beginning of Romans 10, he expresses his deep love and passion for the lost. His desire was that they all be saved. And in Colossians chapter 3, we read these words from him that should help us to know how to think about this. Colossians 3 verse 12, So, as those who have been chosen of God... Holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So what's the proper response? to those who are holy and beloved, who are chosen of God, to be compassionate, not elite, to not think more highly of self. What is the additional call? It's to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. This word of Christ, the doctrine of election, when that dwells richly within you, what do you want to do? You want to extend compassion to others because you see that the doctrine of election is an act of compassion. It's God's willingness to pour his love out upon some. All people deserve eternal torment. And yet God in his wisdom and in his kindness and according to the counsel of his will has determined to pour his special love out upon some having nothing to do with them being able to do anything about it prior to that. So who gets the glory? Only God could get the glory in such a scenario. In Ephesians 5, verse 8, 
For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Back to our text in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Why? Why has God called this people unto himself? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Paul really is saying the same thing here. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Expose them. Expose the evil deeds of the fruit of darkness in the lives of those who say they are believers but clearly are not. This must be exposed. Why? Because God doesn't get glory out of that. When God elects someone, when God casts his special love upon someone, when he begins to prove that in that person's life, that person exhibits a vast devotion to holiness, to walking in the light. Verse 12, For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Hear that? We live in an age where when you have access to the internet, there's nothing that's unspeakable. There's nothing that's sacred. All things are okay. Anything goes. And Paul's pointing out here with great specificity that there are things that ought not even to be spoken of. They're done in private. They're done in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. You see, the issues that run the unbeliever off from churches is not a devotion to the doctrine of election. It's ungodly living, regardless of the theological mindset of the supposed believer. The issue is his lack of devotion to holiness. And anybody can look at that and say, that's no different from the world. They're just acting like they're better. The doctrine of election makes it crystal clear throughout the Scripture that those who are set apart as a people of God are God's people for what purpose? To sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to each other and to Him. To teach each other truth in singing, in proclaiming His excellencies, proclaiming His greatness, declaring who he is. And then in verse 10, for you once were not a people. What? You were not a people, right? Because the Jewish people were a people. The nation of Israel was a people, and then there was everybody else. And they, throughout the scripture, are referred to as Gentiles, Greeks, barbarians, dogs. They were not a people set apart for God's glory. And so they were a people who hated God. And particularly throughout the narrative texts of the Old Testament, you see these people being used of God to discipline Israel. 
And many times God turns that on them and wipes out an entire nation who ultimately were not a people. Peter here says, you're a people. You weren't a people, but now you are not only a people, you are a people of God. You are of his own possession. Makes us think of 1 Corinthians 6, where we've been told that we are bought with a price. You are no longer your own. You're not your own. And if you think, yes, I am, then you need to rethink whether or not you are of the people of God. If you're God's, if you're of God's possession, if you are of the royal priesthood, of the holy nation, of the chosen race, you live to proclaim his greatness. It's why you exist. It's why you breathe. It's why you eat. It's why you do everything you do. You do everything you do to the glory of God because you understand that's why he has designed you. And when you fail, you bring that back to him. You acknowledge it to him. You acknowledge it to others who love you and will help you walk through that. But ultimately, you are drawn back to that center line of holiness and God's glory. Why? Because he set you apart for that. He set you apart for that. You had not received mercy but you have received mercy. You had not received mercy, but you have received mercy. It reminds me when my oldest son was very small, and I'm still not sure what was going on in his head at the time. There was some kind of duplicity, some sort of inability to get his mind around things, and he would say things like, the light is on, the light is off. The light is on, the light is off. I'm eating, I'm not eating. We go, we don't go. Just like that. And now I have a fourth son who's doing exactly the same thing. I think they have their own language, I'm not sure. But here, Peter uses this contrast in terminology, this lingual tool, to point to a truth that was once not a truth. Now, one time, okay, I found Dawson turning the light on and off. The light is on, the light is off. The light is on, the light is off. So he's realizing things can be one way, they can be the other. And there is a complete contradistinction between one thing and the other. And this is why Peter points this out this way. You were not a people, but now you are a people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Romans 9, verse 13, Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Who gets the glory? Who gets the glory? See, if it were dependent upon man who runs, he would get at least a sliver of the glory. It's not dependent upon him. You need mercy. I need mercy. Romans 1 verse 18 tells us that the wrath of God, the full fury of God's mighty, eternal, and righteous anger will be poured out upon all ungodliness and all unrighteousness against those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Friends, do not suppress this truth. This is no less truth than the gospel is truth. This is truth. Don't suppress it. Don't try to save God. Don't try to rescue God from what he has said about himself. Understand this. Understand that you will never fully understand it, nor will I. 
but rest in it. Believe it to be true. Know that it is good. It is not a bad doctrine. It's an expression of the heart of God. And because his full wrath will be poured out upon those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Cling to the mercy that he offers. What is mercy, by the way? It's a withholding of something that someone deserves. It's a withholding of a punishment that man deserves. In Hebrews 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. You understand that? The high priest of the Old Testament era couldn't really sympathize with our weaknesses because he didn't live there. He didn't really understand what was going on precisely in the lives of the people. Nor do you and I with each other. We can to some degree, but not entirely. But this says we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That makes him the legitimate atoning substitute for our sins. Because he does not deserve God's wrath, he can receive it for someone else. Verse 16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what, what do you do with this? What do you do with this most important fundamental doctrine that is found all throughout the Scripture? Well, you don't reject it, run from it. You don't deny it. You want to understand it to the degree that you can, but you also want it to be helpful not only for your own spiritual growth, but in your own equipping of others, but also in your evangelism. So let me recommend that you not do this. Go to a street corner, buy a bullhorn, and tell people about the doctrine of election. Don't do that. It's not a good starting place. In the context of a legitimate relationship, if someone asks, then take them to this text and tell them the truth and don't be afraid of it. But two things that I think are direct applicational statements for us from this text. Number one, number one, rest in his merciful choice. Rest in his merciful choice. Anything else is going to produce anxiety in you with regard to your salvation. If you're trying to maintain your salvation with your conduct as opposed to Resting in his merciful choice leading to obedience, you're going to be anxious because you're going to fail. And if you think that your performance is the test by which you can know whether or not you're of the elect, you're going to be anxious. Rest in his merciful choice. Embrace this pride-crushing reality and cease from prideful thinking and living that you had something to do with your salvation. Rest in his merciful choice. Number two, proclaim his merciful works. Proclaim his merciful works. Sing of them. Tell others about them. Thank him for them. Be mindful of them in your own difficulties in life. Proclaim his merciful works. Peter has said this to us this way. Proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
in Romans 12, verse 1, which is the same letter written by the same apostle who said in Romans 1, verse 18, the wrath of God will be revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness, against those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He says here, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I want to close with these words from Jesus Christ, your Savior. He said this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Father, we hope in your word, and we by no means pretend to understand it as you do. But we long to understand it as you have called us to. Help us never to suppress the truth by clouding it with other truth. But to be overjoyed in the reality that this pride-crushing doctrine is soothing as well. That we can be certain that if we will believe, we will not be disappointed. You've said it that way in the text we looked at last week. He who believes in this cornerstone will not be disappointed. But Lord, we pray, we long for this to be true of us as a people, as a local body, part of the greater universal church of Jesus Christ. We long for it to be true of us, that we would do these three things, that we would proclaim your excellencies, that we would declare your merciful works as an act of exaltation to you, but also that we would do so as an act of equipping one another for ministry, but also that we would do it as an act of evangelism of the lost. Help us never, ever to forget each of those three fundamental priorities of the Christian faith, to exalt you, to equip the saints, and to evangelize the lost. Lord, may we even now in these moments together be engaged in the first two of those things, to exalt you, to equip one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and to scatter from here as we leave to evangelize the lost as we proclaim your merciful works. Amen.